Hello, my name's Adam Spring, and this is a Remotely Interested podcast hosted at remotely-interested.com. So, Ravi, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, yeah. I've been um, looking through the website, actually, and uh, trying to spread the word out about Remotely Interested podcast. Oh, really? So... Basically, you know, you've been working your digital magic on the website, by the way. It's looking fantastic. You know, where can you actually find the podcast now then? Yeah, so iTunes is the kind of main home of podcasting. As as Steve Jobs said, you know, this is the place where it's going to be. And uh, that's where all the RSS feeds come from. But these feeds can go into other services. So we have Stitcher, which is a really good one that you can get on your phone. But also we have Tuned In or Tune In which is a really awesome app because it's hooked up to Alexa or any of the kind of Google devices. So what you can do is basically say, play the latest remotely interested podcast and, you know, it will just pop up on your home device. So we're going full AI then, which is actually a good lead in to who our speaker is or interviewee is for today. Yeah, so as I said, we've been doing the website and my God, you've got some amazing previous interviews on there as well. So please, guys, don't ignore the back catalogue. There's some fantastic stuff. Um, Who would you say is your best interview in season one? So I would say my favourite so far is probably James Rolfe, simply because he was on the original list and I've gotten a lot of them. There's still a few to get. But he was the one overall because it wasn't so much he was difficult to get. But after interviewing him, it was very clear that, you know, the persona that he has on his YouTube channel, Cinemassacre, which has millions of subscribers, like he was a very early adopter of that platform. It's very clear once you speak to him that he's just he's somebody that's getting on with life behind the scenes. Right. So it's family and things like that, are the things that matter to him. So to be able to get hold of him and get some of his time as James Rolfe, as opposed to the angry video game nerd or the persona that he shows on screen. It was just a wonderful experience, you know, just such a good dude, such a good dude. Yeah. And he seems really down to earth as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Fantastic person. And I mean, with that one as well, because there's several sound bites from a number of different people in there, like whether it's Kim Justice, whether it's uh, people that have helped produce the Angry Video Game Nerd movie, all of these people were just willing to talk about him in such a nice light. It wasn't difficult to get a hold of him. As soon as I said I was doing this and I was doing it for James, they all wanted to help. You know, so that's a real sign of a good dude. Real good dude. Oh, yeah. And you've got an awesome interviewee today, haven't you? I have indeed. So I mentioned, you know, that AI was kind of a lead into it. And yeah, John Markoff. So New York Times technology writer, semi-retired. He still does a little bit for them uh, as of 2019. And he also uh, won a Pulitzer Prize in 2013 as well. So we've, yeah. got a, we've got a big one. I remember that name from uh, back in the days because he was actually involved in um, exposing Kevin Mitnick who was like the most notorious hacker at the time. That's right, yeah. Cybercrime and cybersecurity was very much a big thing around his career. And I know of him through a book called What the Dormouse Said, which essentially, wonderfully researched book, by the way. It really shows his background outside of journalism because his background's actually in uh, sociology is what he got his master's in. So it wasn't necessarily journalism that he got his, his overriding degree in. And what the Dormouse said is just a fantastic look at what I would call the prehistory of Silicon Valley. But it's done at a level of detail that is just... It isn't boring. You know, he goes into incredible detail, but it's just a fascinating read about counterculture and how counterculture can marry with technology to create something that wasn't there previously. Awesome. So I think the format of this and probably the format for podcasts going on 
are going to be we basically play the interview both listen to it and then discuss the points afterwards and listeners you are welcome to join in on social media add any comments about this interview absolutely and i think at this point in time that's a good thing to lead into the interview with john and then from there we will see you again afterwards so here's john markoff uh yes i did grow up in palo alto uh i i went to uh, uh as a elementary school and junior high school and high school i i was in bill hewlett jr's class so um i, I lived a couple of blocks away from the hewlett's um i had a paper route um and uh, two of the homes on my paper route were later occupied by Steve Jobs and Larry Page, Apple's uh, co-founder and the uh, co-founder of Google. So uh, I like to say there goes the neighborhood. I didn't, you know, I, I, I ran my junior high school newspaper uh, and I was always interested in reporting. I grew up reading um, the newsletter of an investigative reporter by the name of I.F. Stone. And I, in college, I, I read about the work of a man by the name of Lincoln Steffens, who was a famous early investigative reporter. I ran my college newspaper, and then I went off to graduate school, and I, I, I came back to the Bay Area in 1977, and, uh, you know, that was the you know, close to the year that the personal computer industry started, and I was working as a freelance writer. I, I sort of left graduate school and decided I wanted to be a reporter, but I hadn't gone to journalism school, and so I decided I would just come back and tried freelance and I, I freelanced for five years and then the personal computer industry really took off sort of in the early 1980s and I was hired as a, a member of the staff of the first weekly personal computer newspaper which was called InfoWorld um, which started out very informally it grew up in the same hobbyist spirit that the personal computer industry came from and um, then in 1984, I, I spent a year working at Byte Magazine, which was very helpful because I didn't have a formal computer science background, but Byte was extremely technical and it forced me to learn a lot about uh, the sort of technical underpinnings of basic uh, computing, um, personal computing and, and um, software design. And But I was only there for a year. I, I really did want to, to be a, um, a you know, general uh, uh, Sort of a, a, a uh, I wanted to work for a newspaper um, and, and reach a broader audience. And so in 1985, I was hired um, to, to cover Silicon Valley for the San Francisco Examin Examiner. Um, Will Hurst um, had um, become the publisher and he wanted to, to try to broaden the readership. So I worked at the Examiner for three and a half years and uh, that was sort of in the really the boom years for personal computing and then um, in 1988 I was actually hired by the New York Times and I moved to New York for four years um, and at that point the computer industry from the point of view of the New York Times was about IBM IBM was the dominant computer manufacturer at that time uh, and so I was the national computer writer when I first got there and which meant covering IBM and DAC in the East Coast at that point the the Times had a single reporter in Silicon Valley. Then in 92, I came back and uh, I stayed in, in uh, I was in the San Francisco Bureau of the New York Times covering Silicon Valley. And I, 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 I was there from 92 till when I retired. 
your coverage of the evolution of the World Wide Web. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about that as well, because, you know, your observations and talk of the semantic web and stuff like that, you know, it was really on the button in terms of, you know, where we are now with the Internet of Things and distributed computing and stuff like that. My reporting and my use of computer networks was really pretty early compared to a, a lot of folks. I mean, I'm you know not, not at the very beginning, but when I came back to the Bay Area in the I guess, 77, 78. What first sort of interested me in computer networks is that I had a, a good friend who was one of the designers at Xerox Park. He was one of the team that built the Alto, Alto software. He'd gone to high school with me. And he was my window into that world of advanced computing. And um, so I, he told me about an ARPANET discussion group called HumanNet. And for me, I, I was interested in the sort of impact that this computing technology would have on the world. My, my graduate uh, training had been in the social sciences, and I, I was very interested in the way technology would, would change society. So HumanX was a, a real uh, opportunity for a reporter because it, it gave you uh, a window into a discussion that technical people were having about what they thought about the social consequences of the things they were designing. So the the problem was that the, that you had to be an ARPANET user to have access to uh, to, to human nets, and so uh, I was working at a little research center in Mountain View, and um, uh, we had a pretty fancy HP terminal that you could connect the 300 baud modem to, and at that point, um, the ARPANET was accessed by these things called tips, and there was one at NASA Ames. There was no password; you just had to find the phone number, and I dialed there the the ARPANET tip. And then if you found your way to a computer called MIT AI, anybody who made their way to MIT AI could have an account. And so I got an account on MIT AI. This is late 70s or maybe 80. I can't remember what year exactly, probably late 70s. And I was able to read HumanNets, which was for a, a you know, a, a journalist was just this great, great uh, window. And so, so I, at the same time, I was also, um, reading a lot of science fiction. There was a genre of science fiction called cyberpunk. And, um, you know, people like William Gibson and Neil Stevenson and Werner Vinge were writing speculative fiction about computer networks. And I was reading their science fiction and I was seeing that um, life was imitating art. Um, they, they were writing about sort of this dark world they envisioned, dark network world they envisioned. And I was covering uh, I was beginning to write about computer security and computer crime and what they were writing about in terms of science fiction, I was seeing in the real world. And so that was, that was sort of my, uh, that was my entree into networking. The specific story of my discovery of the World Wide Web, because I wrote the very first newspaper uh, story about the, the web in December of 1993. And that was because I had a source who was a computer scientist at Digital Equipment Corporation Laboratories in Palo Alto. And I would visit him a couple times a year, and we'd have lunch. And one time when I went over, he showed me this thing called the World Wide Web. And I was really struck. Well, the reason I was struck is that he basically said, this is important because it will allow mid-career um, computer scientists to quickly reinvent themselves because they have a new form of publishing. And so the lead of my article is really quite humorous or, or ironic. Um, because I got it all right and all wrong at the same time. My lead was, think of it as a map to the buried treasures of the information age. And when I was when I used the phrase or the word treasures, I meant information. I didn't mean treasure. 
But if you know the way the web developed within three years, it had become, it was becoming Main Street and it really was about treasure um, in terms of e-commerce. And, you know, I had been one of the few people who were sort of reporting about networks. And then the, if you, by 1997, the entire world was focused on the internet and everything turned upside down and, uh, you know, you know what happened from then on. Yeah, and in terms of where we're at now, this notion of Web 4.0 and, you know, the increasingly complicated infrastructures that are making up the Internet now, stroke World Wide Web. So obviously, you know, you've got Internet exchange ports, you've then got cell tower networks and all these other things going on at both a private and public level. I was wondering in terms of obviously your strong background at the moment in AI, what you think about, you know, those networks in terms of information flow and also as well in terms of maybe evolving, you know, what we perceive as a computer. So, you know, for example, being able to have operating systems existing solely on the cloud and then having like a terminal-based system, you know, so you can access all your information with the same fidelity, say, from a phone or a laptop or a desktop computer. We're absolutely already at, at that point in terms of distributed computing. I mean, I work on five different devices. I've, I've moved all of my my working information to what you would call the cloud. I mean, between Dropbox and iCloud and Evernote, I no, I no, I no longer work on a single device. Everything I have is, is spread across multiple devices. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's probably not as um, seamless as that you're thinking of, but it's, it's, it's basically there. So that transition has been made. I think that I'm more interested in, you know, the, the, the early work in the semantic web, um, it seems to have been slow. You know, there are examples like um, Danny Hillis's Freebase and MetaWeb um, that was acquired by by Google. It became Google Null. You see it um, when you um, do any Google search. You know, you you get semantic information. I'm kind of waiting for the next step. I mean, it's um, I think it's super important. I mean, it might be um, it, it might be a route uh, around this challenge of fake news and the, 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 this period, which seems to be very, um, you know, worrisome uh, in, in terms of uh, the impact of, of uh, information, uh, network information on the world's democracies. Um, I hope there's a way out of this muddle, but I, I, I worry about the misuse of AI as much as the positive uses of AI now. I mean, I wrote about computer security for many decades, and then around 2011, 2012, I just gave up because it became a darker and darker picture, and I'd written the same story too many times. The problems of anonymity um, are in incredibly challenging, and um, so, you know, I think that probably AI is the, is some of these AI techniques and technologies are possible solutions, but I see that you know, I see the possibility for misuse as as, as well as, um, you know, sort of positive, positive applications as well. Do you have any thoughts on, you know, things like cryptocurrencies and blockchain technologies, which obviously, you know, cryptography coming out of that and the utilization of networks in a way that in one respect, I guess, are kind of similar to like a medieval tally system, you know, replacing currency? Yeah, there's so much optimism within those communities about those technologies. Um, I certainly see the principles of blockchain for authentication, but I've long since stopped believing in silver 
technological fixes. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm much more interested in the second order effects, unpredicted effects of any particular technology. I'm agape now at what's going on, particularly with Bitcoin. To me, even though there are these these long defenses uh, within the Bitcoin um, community, I to me it looks like tulips. Um, uh, you know, I I can assure you there will be a crash, but I can also sort of see your point about the the potential of blockchain and various other verification authentication technologies, um, and I assume they will have a, a big impact. Um, they are beginning to have a big big impact. Uh, you know, the cryptocurrency thing and sorting it out with respect to its impact on governments, that's a political question, more, I believe, more than a technological question. I just I, I can't I can't fathom that what will happen. So in terms of blockchain and uh, the cryptography that comes with it, do you think the evolution of technologies happen in their most efficient or best way when there's an applied problem? Say, for instance, like in this case, the 2007-2008 crash led to people thinking about different ways of ledgers and then blockchain was a byproduct. I see your point, but I, I think these things are iterative. Uh, I, I, uh, I think that... Um, who was it who said, you know, we we build our tools and then our tools shape us? Was that Churchill? Was it, or he was talking about buildings. But I think that applies. I think that applies to my view of the way these things evolve. You know, new technologies offer new possibilities, but they emerge out of particular contexts, which I think you were sort of trying to get at the the counterculture. I'm I'm you know I'm I'm, I'm anything but a technological determinist, but. I do believe that certain technologies emerge out of and are shaped by certain kinds of social and economic situations at particular times. There's a reason why computing is centralized or distributed or used in that, in, in that way um, that, that is sort of tied to various societal things. Um, and I, I think we're seeing that now. I, you know, I think trying to understand um, how blockchain will change society you know, I, I, I've read the, the, the sort of the theoretical stuff or some of the theoretical stuff. I'm not a blockchain expert at all, but I, I could see the potential for a transforming society, but I, it remains to be proven to me. I mean, you know, I'm, 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 I've been around Silicon Valley for long enough to be very, very skeptical about visionaries just as a rule. You know, my, my rule of thumb is the visionaries are almost always wrong. Uh, and 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 uh, it's very difficult to see over the horizon for more than a couple of years. And, you know, I tend to say that unless I well, I used to say this, although things have changed, unless I saw something on the shelves of fries, I didn't think it was real. Um, and, and that's still sort of a good rule of thumb. Yeah, no, I'm, I totally agree with you, which is why I asked you the question. <laughs> so your wonderful book, What the Dormouse Said, um, for anybody that hasn't read it, recommend them reading it. It's a fantastic history of Silicon Valley. But I think one of the things you did wonderfully was the research was just fantastic. You know, your depth of research and, you know, the the breadth at which you actually covered an otherwise massive subject was just, it was, it was a wonderful achievement. For me, reading it um, as a Brit who now, you know, I live in the US now, but I lived in Britain at the time, it introduced you to a series of people that you wouldn't necessarily have thought about previously if you were living on the other side of the pond. You know, Doug Engelbart, for example, Stuart Brown, who we'll talk a little bit about in a bit. And obviously, you know, other people as well, like Bob Noyce. In terms of Silicon Valley, and it seems like it's a culture where everything is constantly about the new. 
Do you think there is any lessons to be learnt from, you know, looking back beyond, say, the Steve Jobs, the Bill Gates, the Jack Tramiels, the people that built a computer industry in a way, and going back to the people that had the ideas that was in the prehistory and led to where the computer industry is now? Yeah, well, a couple of thoughts. Um, one is, one of the first things I learned about Silicon Valley um, that I think people uh, don't understand is that the is the valley is not a single culture. Um, what actually defines it is that is it is multiple multiple cultures um, that coexist. And you know what's true of one culture may not be true of another. I also think that the valley, um, how to say this politely, the valley is not as innovative as it thinks it is. Um, there is this. Uh, you know, there's this common wisdom that this is the most innovative place in the world. And I think that, in fact, there is uh, a lot of uh, really good engineering in Silicon Valley, and there are some big ideas, but, um, the, you know, there's, there, there are relatively few of them. The, the Valley lived off of a couple of big ideas for a long time, um, uh, up through probably 2000. And, and those were ideas that were put forward by Engelbart and Alan Kay and Mark Weiser. You know, the, the, the early computing notions that led to personal computing came from Engelbart and Kay. And then Weiser basically um, uh, is the guy who, who sort of did the early uh, work in ubiquitous, what became called ubiquitous computing is now called the Internet of Things. And so, you know, the interesting sort of transition was that um, it was Steve Jobs who actually, you know, after being the first one to popularize personal computing successfully in the in the, in the modern sense of the of the machine, he was the first one actually to sort of really succeed in the ubiquitous computing world. And that, if you, my, my understanding of ubiquitous computing is that um, computing goes into everyday things and they become magic. And that was certainly true of the iPod and then the iPhone. He took the music player and then he took the telephone and transformed them with computing. And, you know, those that, that's up until 2000, that's what the Valley lived on. Then we got into this social media era and now we're into AI. But, you know, social media, I don't think there were any really big ideas there that you go all the way back to finger in the 1960s, you know, to, to that stuff all existed, but it existed in a very insular community. And then, you know, the ideas that that the AI um, era is living off of now are ideas that go back into the 1950s, 1960s. Um, they just didn't work back then. They didn't work in the 1980s either. They worked when uh, the internet matured to the point that uh, big data, um, uh, you know, was easily accessible to feed these algorithms and all of a sudden they began to get results. And so, you know, if you, if you, if you look around, um, there are some big ideas here, but but they're they're uh, they're not as uh, not everybody is is independently innovative in Silicon Valley. There's a lot of just selling. <laughs> Do you think there's there's sometimes a risk to look at things in separation sometimes and say, for example, you know, uh, the University of Utah. So many influential people came out of there that you know whether it's Ed Catmull whether it's Nolan Bushnell, whether it's Newell, whether it's Kay, you know, all of these people came out of there. Do you think by not looking at the past uh, in a level of detail and focusing on that new point yeah. that this stuff can be lost? You know, that it's a certain group of people that were all, there was a sociological element to it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, well, so, so c c 
clearly the history is important and the stuff that we're seeing today is is completely rooted in in those that early work i'm you know whether you can take lessons that are useful away from understanding that early history is another question i think you're right that the the, the valley is focused forward and it doesn't tend to you know, it doesn't tend to want to dwell on the past. It, it t- continuously, the Valley also, one of the, the, the interesting things about this, the computer world is we continuously reinvent uh, things. And so oftentimes things that were done, you know, decades ago come back as new. Um, and, you know, that, 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 that comes along with the falling cost of computing. You can do it in different ways and it, it, it reaches, you know, there's a scale issue. It re, all of a sudden it can reach half the world because now half the world have, have computers. So that, that changes, but um, you know, I, I think it's probably just human nature not to pay attention to the past and to look forward. And so tell me a little bit about your biography that you're doing of Stuart Brand at the moment. Yeah, so uh, this was actually, you know, I left the Times and I was sort of, or I was in the process of leaving the Times and I was thinking about what to do next. And um, Stuart Brand, who was, you know, the uh, the uh, creator of the Holy Catalog and a number of other sort of important events in Northern California, is in his late 70s. He's still doing fine. He, he, he is involved in something called the Long Now Project. And he had been thinking about writing an autobiography and decided he just didn't have enough energy to do it. And so a friend of his, Kevin Kelly, suggested the idea to me of doing a biography. And it was particularly interesting idea to me because, you know, I, growing up in Northern California and sort of being affected by the counterculture and the, and the, the rise of Silicon Valley, um, I was about a decade after Stuart uh, Brand. He came to Stanford in the 1950s, and then he came back to the West Coast after being in the Army and uh, you know, was sort of instrumental either in being a protagonist or being, a, as a journalist, being the first one to see something on just a, 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 over a long period of time. Um, and his influence uh, was sort of his life has been the, the spine of a set of events that have created what I think of as a Northern California sensibility or worldview, which has gone on to infect the rest of the world. And, you know, I was in Beijing last year and um, they're just obsessed with Silicon Valley. I mean, they have been infected by Silicon Valley, but it's broader than that. They, they, they really understand, they, they have this understanding of, of, about it, of, actually of the counterculture. I and mean, there is a community in China who are aware of the Northern California counterculture, which was really quite kind of funny. So um, that's the story I want to tell is just, uh, you know, situating Stewart's life in the, the, the events of, uh, that sort of have defined Northern California during the last half century. Wow. And what's your current relationship with the Computer History Museum? Because you've been a strong supporter of them for quite a long time, haven't you? Yeah. So uh, it was, you know, when I left the Times, the, I was hired as a staff historian at the Computer History Museum with the idea of supporting me to work on this book. And, um, uh, you know, then in um, September, I I took a leave of absence from that job, and I'm at Stanford now at something called the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. Um, And I'm there, I have a fellowship, and I'm I'm there basically because Stuart's papers are in the Stanford Special Collection, and there are a lot of them, and it's going to take me a long time to go through. Um, and so that's what I'm that's what I'm doing. And so I'm I'm on leave from the Computer History Museum, but I'm still doing things for them. I moderated an event last night, a conversation with an author who had written a book about DARPA. 
and uh, I, you know, I think I, I, there's a good chance I'll, I'll continue to be involved with the, the museum after I, after my fellowship. And as your long story career of being a writer stroke commentator on technology, you know, is still going strong, what would you say over the years are the biggest lessons you've learned from commentating on and writing about technology? I guess the first thing I'd say is that it's what's so great about being a reporter is that, uh, you know, you just have to uh, copy down what the so-called visionaries say and then keep records to see who was right and who was wrong. Um, it's, it's very, you know, it's, it's, I, I'm, I'm acutely aware of how difficult it is to predict the impact of these technologies on the world. For example, um, you know, if you, if you really think seriously about it, um, the irony of the, uh, the internet, which was a purely American invention. And for a couple of decades, the U S state department tried to use the internet to force open authoritarian regimes. And what happened ultimately is the internet provided uh, an on-ramp to um, an effort to subvert our democracy. So there's rich irony in that, and it's unexpected. That's a classic example of a second order effect. Um, And so, you know, that's what I think about when I think about these technologies. For example, self-driving cars which are seen as this panacea for transportation, I can guarantee you they will not be a panacea, that there will be some second order effect that we don't expect. For example, um, think about the, the way society might change if it's very simple for anyone to go anywhere they want very, very easily, we will have congestion, I can guarantee you. <laughs> um, and I worry about um, the hollowing out of public transit systems. If this is all about the privatization of transportation, uh, it may not actually solve our transportation problems. I mean, I'm not interested in self-driving cars. I'm interested in cities that have no cars <laughs> and are better places to live. The Remotely Interested podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, YouTube, and Facebook not to mention many more as new platforms get created. Like us at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash remotely dot interested. Follow us on Twitter at that interested. And also feel free to reach out to us either on Twitter or via email contact at remotely dash interested dot com. Okay. So Ravi, what did you think of that one? Oh, I thought that was a fantastic interview. Um, It's so important. The kind of uh, Bay area, and the development that happened there. And it's mad to think that all of these people, like, you know, he mentioned Hula, and uh, all of these people like Michael Dell and other guys were hanging around these areas, looking in skips, finding old phone information. And kind of, it was it was just really so small and basic compared to how it is now. Yeah, it was kind of uh, analog network trolling, right? So you couldn't go on LinkedIn or Facebook and stuff like that to get network literacy. You literally had to go through bins and dumpsters and things like that. Yeah. And it was all the kind of, you know, open-minded, experimental hippies that had this kind of idea and uh, free kind of thinking. Because the idea of a computer before was very much in a lab with someone with a lab coat, you know, with an official manual being officially trained on how to do it all. And I mean, I think that's an interesting point as well, because, you know, other people that I've had on, like Lee Falsenstein, who was obviously the uh, moderator for the Homebrew Computer Club, which John also mentions in Dormouse, it's 
very interesting from a community point of view because you kind of have in the 60s a number of things going on, right? You have like the LSD culture and hippie culture and stuff like that, but you also have the civil rights movement, right? So you have this thing like the free speech movement, the stuff going on at Berkeley and, you know, otherwise channels of communication where there would be barriers start to break down. So you immediately have this crazy amount of information flow going on and people talking to each other that otherwise wouldn't be right so there's this massive cultural shift yeah and coming back to the point that you made at the beginning it's very interesting how if you then look at john's career and the way he looks at cybercrime, you can tell that that's very much part of his dna because of that period in the 60s you know it kind of comes full circle it's it's really interesting well it's 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 quite strange because it's it was quite anti-establishment as well. And they, yep. they had stuff like Byte magazine. And, uh, you know, he mentioned it. He worked for Byte. And the importance of that magazine culture, the amount of films that we've seen or, or books that you've read about it, where uh, the cover of the magazine came with the outer on it for the first time or came with the dream machine and they first saw it in that magazine and kind of fell in love and had that idea of owning a computer for yourself rather than, you know, going into a lab. Absolutely. And I mean, if you look at it in our lifetime as well, and where we grew up in the UK, it's a similar sort of thing, right? If you look at whether it's a a magazine like Total from the 90s, which was a video game magazine, or whether you look at something like Amiga Power, these uh, forms of media, it was high level investigative journalism, right? So it's, you have this very um, sharp, information flow going on it's 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 definitely fascinating and i think people like john are very much in themselves you know an artifact of how all of this stuff can shape people right how coming back to the overriding point of this podcast in general you know this intersection between people technology and culture i think john's a very good example of the personification of that you know certainly as a 20th century figure moving on to the 21st century yeah and i and i think there was there's very much a thing about freedom of speech back then as well. And that is now interplaying into our politics and absolutely everything at the moment. But it kind of started with that idea of fanzines, zines, and that kind of Californian um, rebellious scene. Yeah, absolutely. Print it yourself. Yeah. Print it yourself. So basically some of the uh, other points in the interview that I did with him, what were some of the things that really came out to you? Because obviously for me, it's interesting talking to you about this because I interviewed him back in late 2017. So this is kind of fresh to me as well. Well, the, the stuff about the ARPANET not having any passwords at NASA, um, that's uh, that's pretty interesting. And, and the kind of early internet culture, you know, that you could actually just go and join this organization and then get free access. Um, I think it would be pretty hard to get free access nowadays yeah it shows how much the value shifted right it's kind of similar to legacy systems whereby the ultimate security now is the fact that it's still you the system is still using a floppy disk yeah it can go full loop on itself something becomes popular and then when it recedes it kind of it then has again this added level of security based on the fact that there's anonymity right i like i like the mention that he had about um you know fiction becoming fact and life imitating art because he was saying, you know, a lot of these guys would have these ideas of dark networks, of, of, of shared global communications, and um, they'd actually implement it. You know, it'd be, it would be from these hippie kind of ideas and uh, sci-fi ideas that 
develop the technology and you know they always kind of say that uh, fiction becomes fact that's that's uh always the kind of argument with star trek and stuff like that as well and i think one of the other things about you know the area that he's he's in the, the bay area his perception and his ability to communicate about silicon valley which you know silicon valley is an idea right it's something that came about in the 70s and in one respect is very much a marketing tool i found it very interesting when he you know he said something along the lines of people think silicon valley and the bay area is one culture but it's actually a number of cultures coexisting at once you know that to me was very interesting because it's almost like lifting the lid off of something where for me certainly when i read dormouse you have this preconceived idea of what that area is. And normally it's, you know, within the context of your own lifetime, right? Yeah. But the fact that he was willing to say, and said it in a very gracious way, it's not the place of ideas. It's a place where you you have one idea that runs its course and then you move on to the next idea and then that runs its course and then you move on to something else, right? We talk about that within the context of distributed computing and blockchain and he's very much, uh, you know, even in this point in time when we talk now in 2019, AI is seen as the latest thing in the Bay Area. Yeah. You know, so it kind of, it makes you want to wonder, well, what's next? You know, if it's AI now, what's the next thing tomorrow? And it's interesting because you mentioned that it's the Silicon Valley culture, but also I think it's a certain period of time of the culture. Like Silicon Valley back then would have been very different to what it is now. Like if you'd got one of the idealistic hippies that's now a rampant capitalist and you'd kind of taken him back to the 70s and said this is what you're doing now i think a lot of them would be shocked and in horror no i think absolutely and it's very interesting as well because john is currently even now he's looking to write a biography on Stuart brand right so whole earth catalog and all of that so he he seems like he's somebody that's still following that even in well he says he's retired but to me he's semi-retired right because he's still doing a lot of stuff so it's interesting that he's still keeping the finger on the pulse of that but also as well i think talking about that older generation and how silicon valley was different previously those are the ones that while they're still alive you kind of need to look to and go to the learning tree right because they're not about the image production they have a genuine idea of where the wow source is for a lot of this stuff that created the innovation for what is now a financial center right yeah and uh I think his mention of Steve Jobs um, actually just taking standard things and kind of making them really amazing was a a, a really good description of what he did because if you look at stuff like the calculator app, that is is an absolute work of art and that's been on all the iPhones, that's on all the iPads and everything and it's just a thing that people have been trying to get right since operating systems really kind of uh, graphical user interfaces existed and i feel with apple and especially with steve jobs there was a lot of that but also when he came back to apple he didn't come in as this uh, great lord coming back he came in with bill gates in tow to save the whole company from collapse you know yeah absolutely and i think in terms of the conversation with john that kind of it pulls out two things right it pulls out this idea as you said of repurposing stuff and you know i think you mentioned the altair earlier if you look at something like the xylog chip which was for calculators and traffic lights that was repurposed for the first personal computer so you've got that element of going through the dna of silicon valley with jobs and i think the other thing that you know it's useful that you brought jobs in there is the fact that at the end there 
John starts talking about self-driving cars and the idea of privatised transport. And obviously, at the moment, as of May 2019, when we're talking, Elon Musk is talking a lot about LiDAR systems and camera sensors on cars. And it's you can't help but when you look at somebody like that, who at one stage was seen as the heir to Jobs after he died in terms of the person that you look to for that sort of technology person in that part of the world. The Elon Musk, he said a lot of stuff about sensors the end of April, beginning of May, that somebody, you know, I, I don't say this from an arrogant point of view, but I know a lot about that world. And a lot of what he was saying was more to do about chasing the money that's around them, right? It wasn't about fully understanding the technology. And you look at someone like that now and with Tesla and everything, the emperor's new clothes are coming off. It would be very interesting to see how somebody like that who's now in the social media age, which John obviously mentions as one of the eras of Silicon Valley in the interview that we had. Imagine if someone like Jobs, who after he went through that hero's journey, did next, became part of Pixar, then went back into Apple and revitalized it. Imagine if you had social media for somebody like Steve Jobs before all of that and before he got kicked out of Apple. Would it be similar to, say, somebody like Musk? Yes, I think it'd be worse than Musk because Steve Jobs had a, a thing of writing really annoyed emails at like four in the morning. <laughs> really, really bad. And <laughs> yeah, so um, I think it would be worse. But yeah, it would be a different world without him we wouldn't really have the World Wide Web and stuff, would we, because of Next and everything. So, And I think you've got a good point there about Elon Musk as well, because as we're talking about, you know, fiction becoming fact, it's always different people's versions of uh, fiction, you know? So, like, if you look at um, what Markov was saying about public transport being taken further and reduced, and actually he doesn't want to see any cars, in cities in the future and i i actually agree with him i don't yep. want to see this electric car future because it's still being produced with you know environmentally bad stuff it's still being produced in an industrial manufacturing kind of way and i've like looked at many different sci-fi books and one of my favorite ones is actually um alfred bester the stars my destination and that talks about mega corporations and how the corporations eventually become as powerful as the governments. And I think if someone had like the key on self-driving cars or something, they're going to get to a very, very powerful stage. You can already see it happening uh, with corporations affecting politics and stuff. It's interesting. You know, essentially you control the infrastructure then, right? And that's a very sort of that's a weird place to be and a potential how do i put it it's something that would start out as a gray area and then it would become highly regulated i mean i guess a parallel to that at the moment would be if you look at streaming services right yeah. like netflix amazon everything like that the reality of what's going on there is really starting to show now in terms of ownership of content service prices are going up the, i think you know you're going to find a similar thing to like you know the rise in board games um and people wanting to play board games to get away from always on media i think you're going to start seeing the same thing there with things like netflix and the ownership of physical media i think yeah. you'll see physical media coming back a lot more and it's similar with the transport stuff i think you know if if transport becomes something that you own as content or like content then that to me is a very 
crazy and dangerous thing there's like a kind of inevitability about it like you know everybody says oh well we're gonna get to this point that we have absolutely no privacy at all we're gonna get to this point that everything's automated and that you're getting surveilled constantly but i don't think that's actually the case if you look at the dab technology in the uk where they said right we're gonna cut terrestrial transmissions you guys aren't going to be listening to fm anymore you're going to be listening to digital because they messed up the standard uh, nobody actually moved on to it. So, you know, a lot of people have this inevitable, this is going to happen. But uh, I think humans shape and mold how uh, society is going to happen. You know, you, you could build a whole city full of electric cars and then it could become, you know, a, a thing of the past and people could be on bicycles. Who knows? Yeah, well, there's actually a documentary that John appeared in as well, which is by Chris Payne um, from Papercut Films. He's a California-based filmmaker, and you might be able to find it. Uh, certainly, it's on Amazon Prime in the US. I don't know about the UK or other countries, but it's called Do You Trust the Computer? And other people in that include uh, Ray Kurzweil, who, you know, Singularity is near, doing a lot of stuff with Google on their AI program. Elon Musk is in there, the Watson team's in there, Stuart Russell, Future of Life Institute, which uh, Stephen Hawking was a part of before he died. John's very much talking about a lot of AI, distributed computing, and the knowledge economy on the back end sort of stuff. Uh, he talks about that in that documentary. So coming you know, back to those points that you were just making, that's actually a, it's an interesting documentary to watch. It's about 80 minutes. Overall, it's, it's worth watching. So, because it contextualizes a lot of the stuff you just discussed. Well, I'll have to check that out. That sounds really interesting. And um, who have we got next then? So, our next interviewee is going to be Ed Catmull. Oh, wow. Yep. So, Ed Catmull, uh, as of 2019, he just retired as the president of Disney Animation and Pixar Animation Studios. Uh, again, he... So Ed, basically, University of Utah, he was part of just a stellar group of people that essentially became, for want of a better term, the architects of modern personal computing. Uh, he then went out after he did a project which became the first computer animation, which was his hand in a film called Future World, which was the sequel to Westworld uh, with Yul Brynner in. He then went off and essentially formed... Pixar. Yeah, Ed was there from the ground up, you know, founding member. John Lasseter then came on board. Steve Jobs then came on board. So that is our next interviewee. Again, somebody on the list that I didn't think I was ever going to get, but got him. Well, this is fantastic. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, and it's going to be a two-parter because basically Ed and I, we sat down for an hour and a half and I'm not going to go into too much detail, but let's just say my inner geek got massaged that day. <laughs> yeah, no wonder from the very start of computer animation to like the latest Pixar stuff, that's fantastic. Well, it's kind of, it's, how do I put it? When you're talking to somebody that pretty much you can say invented texture mapping, yeah. where do you go from there? That's just <laughs> one thing, right? That's just one thing. But this guy's life has just been, whether it's Steve Jobs, whether it's people that were the head of DARPA, whether it's people like Alan Kay, who John mentioned in this interview, who again, you know, he pretty much did the blueprint for tablets. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like Ed has just known this massive amount of people that are now historical figures. Ed himself, in a way, is an historical figure. But the fact that he's also just a really good dude, that to me is just kind of, 
it's insane, right? It's like you're talking to somebody and it's just like you're talking to a mate. It, it, was, it was awesome. That sounds really good. Yeah. Roll on next month. And until next time, see you soon. Bye.